The Bible reading is uh, Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start reading at verse 15. That's to be found on page 1135 in the Church Bibles. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 25, page 1135. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Thank you for reading for us, Margaret. Um, do hang on to that bit of the Bible, because we're going to, to think about it together. I'd, I'd love to talk to you first about your experience of groaning this week. You had a, you had a week full of groans? Uh, I guess you might well have done. Most of us do, don't we, week to week. Um, maybe it was the groan of physical discomfort. Um, one of those hot, uncomfortable nights, not able to sleep, groaning, miserable. Uh, or the groan of a, of a bad back or a sore knee. That sort of groaning, physical discomfort. Um, or, or was it a groan that arose out of moral failure. Someone let you down in a really significant way uh, and you groan. Or was it your own moral failure and your groan was self-directed of the disappointment of having mucked up uh, yet again? Or, or did you groan as you watched the news, uh, that part of your groaning? Those 26 who died huddled together in the wildfires of Greece, children, 
cuddled beneath their parents in a desperate attempt to save them from the flames. That make you groan as you heard of that terrible moment? Or did you groan from psychological pain? Because in a relationship that matters to you hugely, intimacy has given away, given way to distance. And you groan because nothing seems to put it right. Or was it the groan of bereavement? The groan that arises from a depression that will not lift. You've been groaning this week? I get most, most of us will. But, but here's the thing I want us to, to focus on uh, this morning, is to think, what difference does it make being a Christian believer in relation to this experience of groaning? Does it make our groaning easier? Does it take our groaning away? Do we stop groaning when we become Christians? Or do we groan more because we're Christians? Well, those are the issues that this little section of Romans 8 raises, because it is full of groaning. We actually only saw two of the three groans that are, that are here within this little section. Uh, saw it there in verse 22 when we're told that creation groans. And then in the next verse, verse 23, Christians, we ourselves groan. Um, and just beyond that passage, haven't got to it yet, uh, we're going to come to it next week, in verse 26, the Holy Spirit himself groans. Uh, and that's going to be uh, what we'll be looking at together uh, next Sunday. So, so we're going to focus on these first two groans. But before we get into the groaning, uh, I want us to just sort of see the, the, the shape of the, of the territory here. Uh, how Paul, as it were, maps out the landscape. Uh, it's there in verse 18 where Paul says, listen, here's the basic shape of things. Suffering now, glory then. In this present time, suffering, struggle, difficulty. In that future age, glory. But but you notice uh, the way in which Paul ties these two together. See what he says? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The, the, the word um, I consider is a kind of counting word, a sort of a counting word. It's almost as if Paul says, I'm drawing up my ledger, and over here in this column, I've got all the suffering, uh, and there's a lot of it, and it's hard, and it's big, and it's difficult, and I've got it all in a big list, and I've drawn the line, and I've added it all up. And now over on this side of my ledger, I've got the glory that is to come. And I've listed all of that, all of the promises to come, and I draw a line, and I start adding it up, but I've only got halfway down, or less than a halfway down. I've got a tiny bit down my tottling up business, and I just give up. There's no point, because it's so obvious that the glory to come far outweighs the suffering now. And that's not because the suffering now is small or trivial. Paul knew huge suffering in his own life. No, no, no. The reason it's not worth comparing the two, the reason, as it were, Paul says, I'm not even going to finish doing the sums, is because the weight of glory is so huge. What it is that lies ahead in God's restored creation is so magnificent that I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with what's to come. 
So if, if that's the basic shape, now let's get into the details of the groans. And I've usually just got these two headings to work with. We're going to look at the way that creation groans, and then we're going to look at the way that believers groan. So first, creation groans as it waits eagerly to be set free. Um, And that's the first section from verse 19. Let me read it again. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, when Paul is speaking of the creation here, he has in mind all of the created order apart from us. He's going to get to us in a moment. So for now, he's talking about everything else. Everything in all of creation apart from human beings. Uh, And you see, what he does is he sort of personifies creation. He speaks of this creation as if it were a person. Because he speaks of the way that this creation has been made to wait. uh, And how creation feels frustrated for the moment. And finally, how creation actually groans. So he's speaking as if creation were a person. And we, say, we see, first of all, in verse 20, how creation was subjected to frustration. And that moment of subjection to frustration harks back to the moment of the fall in the Garden of Eden. And what Paul is telling us here is that what happened there in the Garden of Eden in Genesis didn't simply produce consequences for Adam and Eve. So that when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, when they they took the fruit that they'd been told not to take, it didn't just result in bad consequences for them, though it did. It also resulted in bad consequences for creation. Genesis speaks in terms of the very ground was cursed at that moment. Now, you see what that means? That means that stunning as this world is, it's a very beautiful world, isn't it? Uh, Maybe we're just about to to, to have the delight of of driving off, jetting off to some lovely corner of the world for a summer holiday. And we will be astonished at how beautiful God's creation is. But even so, It isn't the perfect creation that God intended. What we see now is marred and ruined compared to what God originally planned. Because currently it is as if if the very cosmos itself is out of sync with God and therefore out of sync with itself. It's full of threats, full of dangers, full of natural disasters, none of which God intended, none of which were part of his original creation. And it's almost as if those elements of the created world around us kind of serve as a a constant reminder to us that things aren't as they should be. And it means, therefore, secondly... That the creation waits 
that it anticipates a better day. Verse 19, you see, speaks of eager anticipation. And the language there has the sense of sort of a craning of the head. You know, you crane your neck. Uh, I don't know, you're on a, you're on a platform. You're, you're looking for the Stansted Express. Is it coming? Because I'm getting a bit late. You know, craning your neck, trying to see, is it coming down the tracks? Well, that's the kind of use of language here. And it's as if all of creation is just craning its neck, saying, when are we going to be let off? When are we going to be liberated from this bondage to decay and set free? And the answer is that creation is going to be set free from its bondage to decay at that great moment when the children of God are revealed. That's the moment when things get put right. When Christ returns and and believers are bound up with Christ into eternity. It's a little bit of a surprise, isn't it? Paul's telling us that the restoration of all that he has made, of all of creation, that the restoration of creation is tied up with the people of God, with, with Christian believers. Now, now, why would that be? Well, God made human beings, God made men and women to be the pinnacle of his creation, his image bearers on earth. They were to be his stewards. They were to take care of the creation that he'd made. That was the, that was the plan. That was the idea. You know, it worked through the six days of creation and climaxing um, in the creation of Adam and Eve who were to look after this great world he'd made. And when Adam and Eve failed to do that, when they wouldn't do it as he planned under his authority, it's as if a linchpin was pulled out. You know, the linchpin that held everything together. And suddenly everything spins out of control. And creation is marred and ruined, no longer able to be what it's supposed to be because the linchpin's gone. And it's only when the linchpin is put back in, as it were, when Christian believers restored graciously, not by our own efforts, but by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's only that great work of putting us back where we're supposed to be that creation then with us is liberated from its bondage to decay. You get the idea? When we fell, we dragged creation down with us. But wonderfully, when we are restored, creation itself is restored along with us. Because we're the linchpin in God's plan and purpose. Hence the frustration. Because it's as if creation knows what it could be. And yet it can't get there. It knows what one day it's going to be. And it can't wait for that moment when it is as God always intended it to be. Now, maybe that sounds a little bit odd because maybe you're thinking, you know, well, actually the world looks pretty good to me. Been to the Grand Canyon, thought that was fantastic. Been up the Alps, those are pretty smart. Sat in a shady forest, lovely. Is the restored creation really going to be better than that? Well, I acknowledge that I may be beginning to move into slight speculation here, but I 
I find myself wondering whether the clue towards what the restored creation might be like just could be found in the way that creation responded to Christ. Because Jesus was the perfect man, living perfectly under obedience to God. Uh, and you can't help noticing the way that the creation was pretty special around him, wasn't it? You know, he spoke and a storm was stilled. He, he took a small amount of fish and bread and fed 5,000. He took some water and he just changed it into wine. Creation does some pretty special things around Jesus. Now, I don't know, but I just wonder if within that we just get some hints of what creation might be capable of when it is restored to, to the splendor, the glory, the magnificence that God first intended it to be. And if that were right, or if something like that is right, then it would explain its frustration, wouldn't it? Because creation thinks, well, I'm a long way away from that. I don't function like that. Awful things happen instead. And creation is frustrated. But you notice the sort of frustration it is. That the groaning of verse 22 is a groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, early in the week, I went to see... Where have they gone? They've moved. I went to see David and Sarah um, to meet Catherine, who at that stage was a day, 36 hours old, something like that, roughly. Now, what did we do during, during the time that, that we sat and chatted together? We did talk about the pains of childbirth. But that wasn't our prime focus, was it? You know, we, didn't, we didn't spend sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, just replaying all the awful... <laughs> She's listening. I'm nervous now. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, we pretty quickly moved past the pains of childbirth to, to talk about the result, to talk about little Catherine, who's making her presence known just at the minute. Because that's the end result. You know, this was pain, this was suffering that had a result. I can't believe as a man I'm trespassing into this territory. But you see what I mean. I mean, awful pain, awful suffering. But the, the, the wonderful thing about it is that it has a product. It has a result. It produces a new life. How wonderful, how glorious that is. And, and that's the comparison here in verse 22. Creation groans as in the child, pains of childbirth. Yes, there are agonies for creation now, but there is the prospect of what is to come. Two quick implications. First, do you see that this means that if our notion of heaven is nighties and clouds and harps then we have missed the mark by miles. If, if we have some sort of, a sort of foggy, ethereal, um, kind of immaterial notion of heaven, then we haven't got a biblical one. Heaven is going to be material. It's going to be solid. A restored world where we will touch and smell and speak and eat a new heavens, a new earth. And therefore, creation matters. We aren't eagerly waiting to be liberated from our bodies so that we become sort of 
ethereal spiritual beings in some sort of ethereal fog. No, we are headed towards a very material, a very solid new heavens and new earth. And if, creation, if, if Christians understand this, then we'd understand that the, the environment matters. Christians ought to be the very best environmentalists. Because we know that creation matters to God. He's going to restore it one day. But in our efforts to be good caretakers, or as, as good a caretakers as we can be of the creation in the present, yeah, let's look after the ozone layer. Let's do what we can for the rainforests. Let's know, though, that we will never restore it completely. That relies upon God's sovereign work, not ours. Because God has subjected it in hope. Knowing that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross wasn't just a sort of a personal salvation event for individuals, for those of us who are Christian believers this morning, it was something much, much bigger. It was about the restoration of all things. Christ dying on the cross was restoring everything to what God had originally intended it to be. So, first, the groaning of creation as it eagerly waits to be set free. And then, secondly, the groaning of believers as they wait eagerly for the redemption of their bodies. Uh, let me read from verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Um, a few weeks back now, um, we received this envelope in the post, uh, and uh, uh, inside uh, is a key. Um, it is a key to a cottage in the Lake District. Uh, and this key says that in a few weeks' time, uh, Beth and I are going to be in one of my favourite bits of the world. Uh, and this key does all sorts of things. See, see, having this key raises expectation. It raises a sense of anticipation that, that Great Gable and Green Gable and Helvellyn and Striding Edge and Derwentwater are within my reach. And I can't wait. And this key says, it's coming. But this key also produces frustration. Because this key reminds me that I am here and not there. <laughs> and lovely it is bounding up the stairs um, on a Sunday morning. That's not quite the same as striding along Striding Edge or finding my way up the Langdale Pikes. So you see that this key does two things. It produces a sense of expectation, anticipation for me but it also actually produces a sense of frustration in me, too. Now, do you see that that is the way that Paul is speaking 
of the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer at this point. He says that the Holy Spirit is a kind of first fruits, a bit like the key. We have the Holy Spirit. We have him. Uh, and we have him in an entirety. So, so the first fruits is not that we've got a little bit of the Holy Spirit and we're going to get a little bit more of the Holy Spirit. No, no, the first fruits is that we've, we've got the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. And it is the anticipation of the full harvest to come when we will dwell in the renewed heavens and the renewed earth that God has in store. And the effect of, of being, if you're a Christian believer, the effect of having the Holy Spirit dwelling within you is the kind of the same as the key. It ought to produce in you both that same sort of mixture of excitement and anticipation. Because it helps you to see what lies ahead. helps you anticipate all that God has in store. But it also the Holy Spirit also enables you to see the gap that exists between what is now and what will be then. And that produces a sense of frustration. You groan. And you groan because currently, if you're a Christian believer this morning, currently you are half saved. Did I get that right? Lots of theological bigwigs in the congregation this morning, all think half-saved. Sounds very dodgy. I don't like the idea of that at all. A few weeks ago, weren't we saying we're, you know, we're 100% Christian? What do you mean half-saved? Well, we're half-saved because we haven't yet enjoyed the redemption of our bodies. That's the accent that Paul has for us here. Uh, and we're not yet adopted as children of God. Now, you see, that's really funny. That's why we read a few verses before, because just a few verses back, earlier, just before the passage that we're focusing on, Paul says, you have received. The spirit you have received brought about your adoption to sonship. Sounds like past tense. But now, he's saying, we wait eagerly, down in verse 23, we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. You know, come on, Paul, make your mind up. Which is it? And of course, once again, we're, we're landed in this now-not-yet tension of the New Testament about what has been accomplished and what yet is yet to be accomplished. You, you have been saved and you, and you are yet to be saved. And since, I don't know if it works for you, but hence the language of saying we're, we're kind of half-saved. Now, if you're not persuaded of this, then, then just run a little thought experiment. Uh, with me for a moment. Because um, it seems to me that we have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us if we're Christian believers. But you and I don't yet have bodies to match. Are you not sure about that? Then, then just glance down. Not sideways, just, you know, let's, let's, be, let's be reasonable about this. Just, just glance down. And, and then ask yourself the question, is what I see a body fit for an eternal king of glory ruling over a, a glorious, majestic, eternal kingdom. Now, can I say that if you are even hesitating before you give me the answer to that question, then you're obviously under 30. 
And if that is the case, then can I say with the benefit of seniority that it won't take long for you to answer that question much more quickly and in the negative. Because it's not going to be long, is it, before you know, the sagging begins and the bulging takes place and the creases appear. Yeah, that, that, that is coming. And, and nothing that you do, you know, no, no gym sessions, no plastic surgery, are really going to hold that in bay, at, at bay. The decay of your body is certain. You haven't got a body fit for eternity. And so at this point, we groan. We groan because not only our bodies, but everything about us reminds us that we're not yet fit for eternity. But everything about us also gets excited because we know that the Holy Spirit is telling us that it will be so one day that the prospect of what God has in store is real and certain. That is the hope in which we were saved. Uh, And two little observations as we close. First, to to those of us who who are Christian believers this morning, do, do you think you're managing to live with the right balance of frustration and anticipation? You're getting that right, do you think? So when tough things happen, Do you plunge into despair and lose all sense of the certain hope that you have, the anticipation of of the good gifts that God has for you? Or, on the other hand, are you somebody who pretends everything's fine and never wants to engage with the difficulty and stress of the world and you live in some sort of a make-believe that everything is fine? And all is well. In other words, you know, did you fall off one side of this path or the other? God would have us hold those two things together. Hold the awareness that the Christian experience is full of frustrations, full of difficulty, full of struggle. But Christian expectation is full of hope, full of anticipation of what God has in store for us so that we don't despair. You're managing to hold those two together in right balance as you live your Christian life. And if you're not a believer, do you see why this matters? The Christian faith is so, so much more than an individual get-out-of-jail-free card. The Christian faith concerns God's plan for the restoration of all things, for the establishing of renewed creation. And though we may not see it yet, when we put our faith in Christ, we begin to set our hope on that future reality. And we find that that hope changes everything. So how are you going to wait? Given that currently we're frustrated and groaning and waiting, how are you going to wait? You're going to wait passively, a bit like in a waiting room, nothing to do, just sit there, passive, wait for your name to be called. Or are you going to wait actively? Sort of waiting that I'm going to be doing over the next few weeks. You know, packing. Putting my walking boots to one side. Getting the maps out. Planning and preparing. And to shift the analogy further, and it goes, am I going to work out who can come with us? 
who else could join us on this fantastic future that lies ahead? You know, I actively preparing, planning for God's eternity and speaking to others of it who currently don't have the hope that you have. You and I have groaned this week. The groaning has been of what sort though? Your groans been groans of despair? You've given up hope of things getting better? The groaning been the groans of anticipation? Spiritually craning your neck, gazing down the line, anticipating the very wonderful things that God has in store. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, we thank you for uh, the great work that you have done uh, in bringing Christ to a cross. Uh, Give us faith uh, to see uh, all that you have accomplished through that death. Uh, It surpasses our understanding uh, how Jesus Christ, uh, dying under a Roman execution, uh, could prove to be the great turning point Uh, that ensures that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and that it will be set free to enjoy the glorious freedom of the children of God. And it surpasses our ability to understand how good it will be to be part of that community of faith. Uh, So open our spiritual eyes uh, to see more clearly Uh, what um, is invisible to us now, uh, but will one day uh, be more tangible, more real, more solid uh, than anything that we can see and touch now. Uh, And would the anticipation of all that lies ahead uh, change the way in which we live? And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.